When it comes to deterrence and readiness, simulation is integral to both of those things. The world is incredibly and increasingly more complex. We're widening the aperture of areas where there could be competition and conflict to include cyberspace undersea. Potential for really disruptive influence operations through a future metaverse is quite a scary future. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're on location in Orlando, Florida at the Inter-Service-Slash-Industry Training, Simulation, and Education Conference, or IITSEC. Luke and I will be moderating a panel of experts from the Next Big Thing series of talks, where they'll discuss how they imagine the future fight through emerging technologies, as well as take questions from the audience. The lineup features returning guest to The Convergence, Jenny McArdle, adjunct senior fellow from the Center for a New American Security and head of research at Improbable U.S. Defense and Security. Whitney McNamara, associate vice president for Beacon Global Strategies and non-resident senior fellow for the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And Commander Paul Grostad, Norwegian Navy and deputy branch head, concept development for NATO Allied Command Transformation. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's jump into the discussion. All right, folks, it's about 2.30. I think we're going to get started now. Uh, I want to welcome everybody. This is a great turnout. Uh, My name is Matt Sanisbert. I'm with the U.S. Army Mad Scientist Initiative. We're recording this live from IITSEC. This is the, the largest modeling and simulation and training event in the world here in Orlando, Florida. And I say that because uh, my colleague on the other side there, Luke Shabro, we run the, one of the Army's podcasts called The Convergence for the Army Mad Scientist Initiative. So we're doing this live here in front of you guys, and then we are going to record this, and this will be released as a podcast uh, in the coming months. So I want to welcome everybody. Um, this is the first in IETSEC's Next Big Thing series. That's a series that is meant to highlight new and disruptive trends in modeling and simulation. And today we're going to focus on how emerging technologies are gonna radically reshape the future of competition and conflict. Uh, So we've got a great lineup today. We've got a great uh, set of panelists here. Um, A little note about the Army Mad Scientist before Luke goes and gives you kind of our our pitch that we normally do and goes into a little bit more detail. Um, We used to have a saying with Army Mad Scientist, it was be disruptive and wear great socks. So today I've got stars and stripes, but instead of stars, I've got little baseballs because that's a a passion of mine. And Luke, what do you have on today? I have my uh, Merry Christmas socks, uh, given all the decorations around. Very festive, good work. Um, So Luke, I'm going to hand it over to you. You can do the Mad Scientist and then do a little introduction to our panelists and then we'll kick it off. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Matt. And we're just excited to have uh, such great panelists here and uh, three uh, high-powered intellectuals with two schlubs moderating, and uh, we're just excited to be here. So the Army Mad Scientist Initiative is a program uh, that was really founded in the mid-2000s, but a program that's evolved over time. And what we're trying to do is help the Army think differently. Uh, as we've always said, we try to disrupt ourselves before we're disrupted. Uh, and the way that we do that is really to, excuse me, 
look at the future operational environment. And what we're trying to do is envision that future operational environment. We're trying to envision the future and describe the future operational environment, not predict it. Uh, so we want to understand the different divergent futures that are out there and understand the characteristics of that future operational environment that the Army is going to have to operate in and how can we build the best force possible in order to do that. And so through that, we work with a lot of different groups, uh, but primarily three groups working with uh, in the government itself, of course, working with our sister services across the Air Force, Space Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, uh, across the spectrum. But we also work a lot with other government agencies uh, throughout the intelligence community, Department of State, Department of Treasury. Uh, the second group we work with a lot is academia. Uh, we've previously done work with uh, Georgia Tech Research Institute, uh, SRI International, Austin, uh, excuse me, University of Texas Austin, and a number of other groups. And then the third group, uh, a lot of folks here today, tech and industry, uh, and really understanding what's at that bleeding edge uh, so that we can help the Army avoid some of those pitfalls that we've had in the past of not understanding what might be coming in the future. So the program has, as I said, been around for several years. Uh, and We try to really harness the intellect of the nation and bring people from across the spectrum, not just DOD related, but who is seeing different things than what we do so we're not just talking to ourselves. Uh, so I'll always make a pitch for the brand. If you get a chance, if you're on Twitter or Instagram, we're at Army Mad Sci. We have, as Matt said, the Convergence podcast. You can find on pretty much any podcast platform, uh, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all. And then uh, we actually have the Mad Scientist Laboratory, which is our blog site that puts out quick reads about the future. Uh, and we always note that over half of those are from guest submissions because we want to hear from people again outside of who we normally talk to. Uh, and that's at madsideblog.tradoc.army.mil. Uh, so now that I've made the pitch, um, what I want to do is, again, we have three amazing panelists, so excited, um, and I want to have them give, give them a chance to introduce themselves because uh, we're not going to be able to give it full justice. Um, but I'll start out with uh, Jenny McArdle from Improbable Defense who is really uh, a true mad scientist, uh, has contributed majorly to the program, been on the podcast twice, uh, and, and just a very good friend. So, Jenny, if you want to start. Thanks, Luke, and thanks, Matt. And, I mean, I really want to echo Luke. If you have any interest in writing for the Army Mad Scientist, seriously reach out. It's an amazing way to get involved in the debate. So I really can't rec uh, recommend this organization enough. Uh, they really put out some really thought-provoking stuff. So as Luke said, I'm Jenny. I am the head of research at Improbable. We are a startup that brings distributed simulation to the DOD. Um, I am also an adjunct senior fellow with the Center for a New American Security, a think tank based in DC, and I also am with the Joint Special Operations University. Hello, uh, I'm Paul Grostad uh, with the Norwegian Navy, currently working at the NATO's uh, Warfare Development Command in Norfolk, Virginia, where I'm the deputy branch head for concept development. Um, trying to align conceptual efforts throughout the alliance and nations and NATO-affiliated centers of excellence. Uh, I'm also running uh, a project we, we're calling Cognitive Warfare uh, that we'll touch upon uh, during the talk. So, thanks for having me. 
Good afternoon, Whitney McNamara. I'm Associate Vice President at Beacon Global Strategies, where I work with tech companies that have capabilities that are tailored to national security solutions. I'm also a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And I'm also affiliated with the Atlantic Council's Defense Adoption Commission, co-chaired by former Secretary of Defense Esper and former Secretary of the Air Force James, where we're trying to figure out barriers for innovative technologies to be adopted and scaled within the Department of the Defense. Awesome. Thanks, Whitney. Now you can see why we're so excited about this panel. So we're going to get started now into kind of the heart of the talk. Um, so we've got some questions here that we'll ask the panelists, and then at the end of that, we'll open it up to uh, audience questions. So Whitney, we're going to we're going to get started with you first. Let's let's stick with you here. Can you give us kind of uh, you know the DoD perspective here? Can you provide a high level overview of the DoD's thinking on the future of competition and conflict, and what if any technologies um, were specifically highlighted as part of that future? Yeah, absolutely. So as I'm sure a lot of our audience members know, the National Defense Strategy just came out about six weeks ago. And I think that's really instructive in terms of how the department is thinking about you know, future warfare and technology. I'd say the biggest difference between the 2018 and the 2022 NDS is that China has taken center stage in terms of the United States you know, number one threat priority, whereas before China and Russia were really put on similar footing in terms of how the United States looked at great power competitors. And that's despite Russia's latest you know, destabilizing event, um, invasion of Ukraine. It seems the administration you know, ultimately concedes that you know, Russia does not have the global reach. Um, it can't reorder the international system. And so that really makes Beijing the more existential threat here. So it should be unsurprising that the central premise of the NDS is how to sustain and strengthen deterrence against Beijing, which the Secretary of Defense calls you know, the most consequential strategic competitor for the United States for the coming decades. And the main theme, again, is right deterrence, or what the department calls integrated deterrence. And the idea behind integrated deterrence is that the PRC is ultimately pushing you know, holistic strategies to achieve their objectives, whether that's economic coercion, you know, gray zone tactics, conventional military buildups, disinformation campaigns, to achieve their objectives. And that means you know, to address that challenge, our approach needs to be holistic as well. Um, the department defines this as seamlessly working across warfighting domains, theater, spectrum of conflict, bringing in other instruments of U.S. national power uh, to include allies and partners, you know, backed by a credible nuclear deterrent. You know, it's absolutely a mouthful here. But I think, like most things, the implementation of this is going to be what's going to make all the difference. And I think that's why um, the term campaigning was added to the National Defense Strategy, which is basically the mechanism through which they hope to carry out integrated deterrence. Campaigning, again, another jargon mouthful, you know, the conduct and sequencing of logically linked military activities to achieve strategy-aligned objectives over time. Basically, campaign initiatives are meant to change the environment to benefit the U.S. or prevent and discourage, you know, adversaries from doing things we don't want them to do. And as is usually the case with the NDS, it emphasizes how our allies and partners are our greatest asymmetric advantage. And that also includes when we think about future warfare and technology. Um, it recommends better synchronizing our military planning, information sharing, ensuring military interoperability, co-developing research and development for emerging technologies. Um, basically, all facets of the NDS make sure to include that our allies um, are part of you know, how we're going to solve a lot of these problem sets. 
And for technology, the NDS discusses the role of technology in national security in two main ways. One, in its role in escalation dynamics. Um, it talks about how emerging technologies are affecting escalation dynamics, especially in cyber and space domains, where we sort of lack uh, clear norms there. And I also found it interesting that we're emphasizing not only how tech changes battlefield dynamics, perhaps at the technical uh, tactical or operational level, but really how emerging technologies can pose challenges for strategic stability, specifically calling out counter space weapons, hypersonic weapons. Um, and in that same vein, it also mentions how new applications of AI, autonomy, can not only change the nature of kinetic conflict, but can disrupt these more strategic operations when it comes to things like supply chain and logistics. And then the second major tech mention in the NDS is the role of technology and innovation for national security. And the comments here, I think, really echo what the administration and the department have been saying thus far about innovation. One, you know, technological edge has long been the foundation of our military advantage. And then two, we have an extremely strong and diverse innovation base in the United States. And so the key here is really figuring out how to better support, leverage, coordinate, you know, with that network of research institutions, you know, commercial tech industries, small businesses. Um, and for research and development, you know, we highlight the importance of directed energy, again, hypersonic weapons, integrated sensing and cyber, and also those longer term horizon technologies that need funding now to include quantum and biotech. And it also highlights, which I would say most of the folks in the defense innovation space would say is the biggest challenge for the department, which is how do we make sure that that R&D is actually connected to the adoption of those technologies? How can we accelerate the commercialization of military relevant capabilities in things like you know, AI autonomy, integrated network system of systems, human machine interfaces? And lastly, unsurprisingly, there's a specific call out for how important data-driven technologies are and saying how the department needs to have major reforms to make sure we're integrating data, software, and AI at scale and rapidly to get in the hands of the warfighter. So again, no major surprises there. This really gels, I think, so far with the administration's you know, initiatives, priorities, and messaging around tech and innovation. No, I think that's a great start off, Whitney, and, and some amazing points made when we think about tying the national security strategy and national defense strategy to the actual innovation. We're not innovating for innovation's sake, but we're trying to gain, again, that competitive edge. And I think it's really important because um, just reading a recent book, um, Hal Brands' Twilight Struggle, and thinking about the Cold War, and uh, Mad Scientist just had a conference, uh, Back to the Future, using history to forecast. And history is not perfect. History does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And one of the things that you find is that uh, Cold War advantages came from advantages, from having strengths um, and negotiating from places of strength rather than uh, being behind the eight ball, so to speak. And so I think it's really important. Um, and tying that, I think, uh, to start off with Paul, I think really ties to, you know, in June 2022, NATO released their NATO strategic concept. Um, can you kind of provide a, a high-level overview of that strategic concept? Um, what does that document really say about what NATO thinks about the future of competition and conflict. So General and former Secretary of Defense Mattis has always said, we will not go to war alone. We will go with our allies. And so um, thinking about that, what, what if any emerging technologies are highlighted in that document as well? Thanks, Luke. 
I'll just uh, caveat this by saying this is my, my personal interpretation of the strategic concept. Uh, but um, yeah, to touch the wave tops, uh, the NATO strategic concept uh, is a NATO policy document that is second only to the North Atlantic Treaty. Uh, it's usually updated every 10 years or so. It's been 12 years now since the last uh, strategic concept from the Lisbon summit. Uh, and since then, we've obviously had some dramatic changes in the security environment. Um, so this, uh, this year's strategic concept sort of reinforces the key purpose of the alliance, uh, being the collective defense of all allies, and the three core tasks that have not changed. Uh, that is deterrence and defense, crisis prevention and management, as well as cooperative security. So the, the strategic concept really is a shared vision of the threats, challenges, and opportunities that are facing NATO uh, in the coming years. And main uh, trends, as we've heard already, strategic competition and pervasive instability fueled by mainly hybrid threats like disinformation campaigns, cyber, uh, cyber attacks, uh, weaponization of migrant streams, uh, trade and economics and so forth, and energy. What we see, of course, we're all aware there's no longer peace in Europe. Uh, Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine is a significant threat to the alliance, uh, security and peace and stability in the region. So that uh, Russia is recognized as a threat to uh, alliance security, which is uh, a dramatic shift in the language used. Furthermore, China is, is uh, spelled out as a challenge for the first time. However, NATO as an organization does not consider China a threat. So we will continue to engage in constructive dialogue with China. Uh, among the global uh, challenges that uh, is spelled out is emerging disruptive technologies. And uh, the, these technologies are altering the character of conflict and uh, gaining strategic significance. Um, technological primacy is increasingly influencing the success on the battlefield and has an, uh, a significant, uh, so the, the Alliance has a significant focus on these technologies. However, the concept itself does not specifically mention any single uh, technology. Uh, it is talking a lot about uh, space and cyber. Um, however, the, uh, the different technologies that NATO has agreed to focus on or I'll try to try to list them all, but it is AI, autonomy, uh, big data, uh, quantum technologies, space technologies, uh, biotech, uh, novel materials, um, and uh, energy and propulsion. I'm sure I missed some something, but. Uh, those are the essential, essentially the EDTs that NATO has agreed to focus on. So, Paul, I'm gonna. I was an instructor in the Navy for a few years, and I'm gonna do what they tell us not to do, which is called shotgunning. And uh, I wanted to ask you kind of a wild card question. 
and, and this is your personal opinion, if you had to go to war tomorrow, what, what three of those emerging disruptive technologies would you focus on the most? Tomorrow, I think I would say AI, uh, autonomy, and, and data are the most, the most immediate that we can, that we can uh, exploit and, uh, to our own advantage at, at this point. That's great stuff, Paul. And, and so Paul and Whitney kind of gave us the, the overview of two of, of the defining you know, strategy documents that we have here for the DOD and our NATO allies. Um, Jenny, I want to ask you about you know synthetic environments now. So that's not mentioned in the NDS or the NATO strategic document, um, but we're here at you know the premier modeling and simulation conference. So as we start thinking and conceptualizing the future of competition and conflict, and when I say we, I mean the DoD and our NATO allies, how and where does simulation fit into that? Great. So um, as you heard from my two colleagues, the NDS and the NATO strategic concept, are really two big themes emerge. One is deterrence, and the other thing that emerges that isn't necessarily the most explicit thing is readiness. You know, we obviously need to be able to deter our potential adversaries, making it clear that they will be unable to achieve their strategic ends by force. And then, of course, in the event of a conflict, we have to be able to achieve our political aims through our military. And there's this aphorism within the military that all but war is simulation. And while I realize it sounds real pithy, there is a certain truism to that statement. Um, when it comes to deterrence and readiness, simulation is integral to both of those things. So I want to break that down a little bit. So when we think about you know, deterrence, we're typically thinking about deterrence by denial or deterrence by punishment. And simulation is core to both of those. So from when we think about deterrence by denial, you can think about the use of, say, simulation to simulate the effects of an adversary's operations on our critical infrastructure. So we can start to build in resilience measures around that. So we have more resilient critical infrastructure and um, society is more resilient. When we think about deterrence by punishment, you, know, you can use simulation to optimize the best spread of our nuclear forces across our triad for counterforce targeting. Um, readiness is a bit more complicated and it gets really interesting. So, you know, when it comes to readiness, the military has to describe what it must be ready for, when it must be ready, and what components of its force structure should be maintained in a state of readiness. And if that's not complicated enough, we also have to understand what inputs to readiness, you know, personnel, equipment, supply, training, should all be allocated to achieve those ends. And simulation can be used to support all functions of readiness, arguably. So we can break down the analytic side of that. So, you know, simulations and war games can help us ideate and think about what our future force should look like when it comes to the future, future of competition and conflict. Um, on the experiential side, you know, simulation is core to training and education. And we're going to see so many good examples of that on the show floor this week at ITSEC. Um, so I guess, you know, the question really becomes when we're talking about the future of competition and conflict and when we're thinking about deterrence and readiness, what types of simulation should we be using? And, um, you know, I'm a former professor and I used to always tell my students, well, you know, it depends. It depends on what the end goal is. So um, within the simulation community, this broad taxonomy emerged in the 90s to think about simulation. I'm sure a lot of people in this room already know that taxonomy live, virtual, constructive. So live, 
We're talking about real people operating um, real platforms in a simulated environment. The best example of this in my mind is the recent film Top Gun that came out, fantastic film, saw it twice in theaters, highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. But Maverick flying a real platform um, simulating a bombing raid, great example of live. Virtual, um, real person in a simulated system, um, operating a simulated system in a simulated environment that can be anything from a headset to a full multi-million dollar full, full motion simulator and then constructive. So these are synthetic and simulated entities operating simulated platforms in a simulated environment. And the best way to think about that is a computer game. So, you know, much like a computer game, constructive simulations can be run real time, faster than real time. A uh, great example, which I used to give to my students, was a Total War series. So depending on the end goal of your simulation, what you are trying to achieve, you might use one type of simulation or you might use a, you know, a confluence of those three. So if we're trying to think about what is the ultimate distribu distribution of our nuclear forces for counterforce targeting. Obviously, a constructive simulation is the way to go. For certain types of training, we might want to use live, virtual, and constructive simulations, or we might just want to use virtual and constructive simulations, which is where synthetic environments come from. So um, I work for a company that builds synthetic environments. My PhD is on synthetic environments. I can nerd out on this stuff all day, but I think synthetic environments are so crucial when it comes to thinking about the future of competition and conflict. Because when it comes to the future of competition and conflict, we're thinking a lot about multi-domain operations. So how do we start to bring in the cyber environment, the space environment, electronic effects? And the thing is, we cannot bring that into a live environment with fidelity. If you were to bring live cyber into a training event, you can put the platform at risk, warfighters at risk, you could put a local civilian population at risk, jeopardizing their ability to use the spectrum. There's so many different reasons why we cannot do that. Um, and then of course, you know, there are those ever curious adversaries or potential adversaries that were mentioned earlier um, that are always kind of watching our exercises. So you might not want to do that for operational security reasons. So a synthetic environment for a lot of different reasons when it comes to thinking about the future of, you know, joint all-domain command and control or multi-domain operations. Um, that is where you're going to get the most realism when it comes to training or, you know, analytic type simulations for, you know, ideation. No, that's excellent, Jenny. And I'm curious as to your thoughts when we think about the inclusion of information operations and cyber and electronic and space, um, all these things, and as you said, you, there's a lot of that you can't really do live um, for, for various reasons. But when you're in that simulated environment, when you're in that synthetic environment, how do you actualize or model some of the atmospherics that you don't normally get maybe in simulations, um, things that uh, affect psychologically, um, things that uh, maybe are population-centric, um, and, and even into some of the uh, extreme physics, uh, whether it be EW or space or things like that. Yeah, so first, I think you have to start with what is your end goal for that simulation in terms of like the fidelity of the models. So for instance, um, I used to do a lot of um, cyber modeling for campaigns and mission simulations with NATO for training events. 
And we do not need to model the entire cyber kill chain to understand what cyber should look like from an effects-based standpoint. You can honestly look at the CIA triad, so confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information, and start to think about how you can model cyber effects based on that, because at the end of the day, what I need the warfighter to think about is how to maintain mission assurance. So to figure out how to operate that platform when part of it is sabotaged, how to operate that platform when it is subverted, how to start to recognize when something seems amiss because maybe the integrity of system information has been manipulated. So that's one. And then there's, of course, as you said, the information angle. And that's something we really struggle with. The military is not really good at simulating the woolier kind of human elements of warfare. Um, and so there's some interesting things that are emerging in this space. Um, so not to hype my company again, but we actually model synthetic populations. So we have figured out, and we did this through Credo with the IC, um, how to model, an um, model a population at the individual level based on basic needs where it's representative of population at the aggregate level. So you can pull out PII. And so you can start to build this really interesting pattern of life within a given city or a different you know, area of operations. Now, now there's some really cool companies that are starting to scrape data of, in, of adversary information operations in real time. So you can use that data to build a conceptual model of what that, what an information operation could look like. You can marry that with, say, cognitive models, um, there's some really interesting work on will to fight, um, building, out building out models around kind of the conceptual models that like Rand has developed with will to fight. You can start to bring those things together where, I mean, it will never be t entirely representative. Um, you know, there's a saying, of course, that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, I think this is a useful way to start thinking about information operations. It's not entirely correct, but it starts to allow us to think about the way it can, um, it can change a, a mission, how it can impact an operation, how we can start to incorporate that into training events. Um, because right now, obviously, we use live actors, which you know, sometimes, like, especially when you're thinking about like, scale, urban operations, things like that, it's just not compelling enough. No, that's a great answer, Jenny. I appreciate it, and I think it goes back to the Eisenhower quote of uh, plans are nothing, but planning is everything. And so you're, you're kind of generating the models and to think about the implications for that without necessarily replicating what the exact scenario will be. And I think you bring up two great points um, in that the military sometimes struggles with that squishy part uh, of cognitive understanding um, and thinking about population psyches and things like that. Um, and then your, your idea and essence of uh, first principles. What are, what are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to do? And I'm a big believer in, in first principles thinking. Um, I want to pivot over to Paul, and I think there's a good segue there from what you were discussing with uh, information operations and cyber. Um, and Paul, you've been really focused deeply on the, on the cognitive elements of warfare, um, as you mentioned earlier, but been a big fan of the work that you've been doing to explore that. What, what is cognitive warfare really all about? And uh, cognitive maneuver and how is that going to then shape that future battle space? Uh, thanks for that que question, Luke. Um, obviously, the cognitive dimension uh, is nothing new in warfare. Uh, since Sun Tzu and uh, his focus on deception and understanding your enemy and understanding yourself and Clausewitz and all of these, uh, you know, we've all always been thinking about will and morale and other aspects that, that were, were mentioned. So the cognitive dimension, at least the way we see it, is the, is the most 
important dimension because it is where decisions are made and ultimately where wars are won and lost. So, the, but the problem is, as we've just talked about, we don't, we're not good enough on on the cognitive. Uh, we're very good at the physical and getting better at the virtual, uh, but the cognitive is uh, kind of still eluding us to to a large degree, and that's one of the reasons I'm here now to to understand how how we can best model and war game and whatever the that dimension which is uh, so crucial. So yeah, uh, through uh, innovation work that uh, we've been doing at, at my command in Norfolk, NATO's Warfare Development Command, uh, we've we've seen like a convergence between the more traditional influence disciplines, if you will, and a lot of new emerging technologies and uh, and sciences like uh, AI and uh, and. Uh, autonomy and, and big data. Uh, we've seen that used to great effect in recent years by Cambridge Analytica. Of course, that's a situation that, while that company does not exist anymore, uh, the availability of data, whether through legal or black market data brokers, is just increasing. So the threat from similar actors is just going to increase in our, in our opinion. Um, if you add to that the availability of a new type of data that is emerging, uh, physiological data, personalized physiological data, which I'm sure most of you is wearing some sort of a, a sensor that's recording heart rate or galvanic skin response or a lot of other stuff. Um, while some of that data is currently protected as medical, it will increasingly be made available for exploitation and weaponization. Um, we'll, we'll touch on that a little later as well. This is somewhat, um, somewhat out there and uh, not, not everyone agrees, of course, but something we are watching quite a bit is uh, how directed energy weapons or, um, or um, other, other types of... Um, other types of uh, non-lethal weapons might be used to influence cognition. That is something that we're watching. Uh, there's also uh, aspects of uh, our emerging understanding of the human brain through uh, developments in neuroscience that is very interesting, and I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later in the in the talk. Um, but our point is that. These threats, uh, and to some extent opportunities uh, presented by emerging technologies, will increasingly be used to disrupt trust in the force, not just society at large, but trust also in the force, uh, will, morale, and um, decision-making. And that, that is the reason why uh, my command is working on, on this concept on how to protect the alliance from from weaponized information and other other ways of uh, targeting human cognition. Well, that's good stuff. And you mentioned that you know you want to talk about some things that are far out there that many people might not agree with, and that's kind of at the heart of what we do at Mad Scientists. That's what we're looking for: those things that people think are kind of crazy. That's what we're trying to bring in. So that's that's good stuff there. I feel like like Luke and Jenny have a, a pithy, clever quote to insert into all their responses, and I have. <laughs> 
I have nothing over here, so I'm going to do some self-reflection tonight and see if the next time I do this, I can have a good quote for each one of these. Um, but they're very learned. Um, Whitney, I want to ask you about something you said in your first response. You talked about integrated deterrence and campaigning. Um, so it's clear the, the DOD is grappling with a radically changing threat environment, and we're trying to develop new approaches to, to, to meet those challenges. So can you talk a little bit about how emerging technologies, in particular simulation, can support integrated deterrence and, and campaigning like you mentioned? Yeah, so to me, the standout theme here is how to address complexity, right? And this is mentioned multiple times, not only in the latest NDS, but the last NDS, and sprinkled throughout department talking points over the past few years, right? The world is incredibly and increasingly more complex. We're widening the aperture of areas where there could be competition and conflict to include cyberspace under sea. And those domains and even traditional warfighting domains um, are fundamentally changing with the introduction of emerging technologies. We're also talking about many more levers at an adversary's disposal that could harm the United States from critical infrastructure attacks, limited gray zone attacks against our allies, disrupted supply chains. And unfortunately, you know, the Department of Defense hasn't been really able to drop anything from the list of things that it typically has to contend with, right? We're still looking at conventional military balance. We're looking at missile defense. We're looking at nuclear credibility. And we're not also contending just with a long-term military competition with Beijing, but there's that economic and technological dynamic to it as well. And so integrated deterrence and campaigning to me, and I'll just you know say it, like integrated deterrence has gotten a lot of flack in defense circles as sort of being this meaningless buzzword or too broad to be meaningful. Um, and that's, a, I think, a fair criticism. I think it's better understood if you think about it working in concert with campaigning. To me, the, the, um, the pairing of the two explains how the department is attempting to wrap their arms around that complexity in attempts to be comprehensive but focused. Um, and we can't manage that you know, security environment that I've just described above, um, you know, the ability to deter multiple adversaries with different toolkits, different motivations, different risk thresholds, without an incredible amount of thought and deliberate processes to do so. And I think that's a big part of how campaigning is meant to support integrated deterrence. And the NDS even emphasized this. It says, you know, what we're describing requires a lot of discipline, focused planning, connecting end ways and means, feedback loop, prioritization. And of course, the department in many ways is charged with, you know, connecting ends, ways, and means when it comes to strategy and budget, which we could debate another time how well they do that. But this to me goes one step further. We're not just talking about, you know, the strategic level justification for a force structure decision. We're really talking about the day-to-day -day employment of a narrower set of tasks than we do currently. We're talking about something that's more discrete, targeted, and how do we inject rigor and consistency into how we, you know, intend to carry out deterrence. And the department, I don't think I have to tell any of you, is not quite run like a Fortune 5 company by any means. But when I hear things like the conduct and sequencing of logically linked activities to achieve aligned, okay, no modern, even remotely successful organization, especially the size of the department, can do that, you know, or even attempt to do that without building foundational technological processes, you know, into that ambitious goal setting. And I also think the department has to think really thoughtfully, right, about how to ultimately scale horizontally and vertically that foundational process that allows disparate entities within the department to share insights, coordinate activities in a very cogent manner as it describes. And I think synthetic environments are extremely well suited, if not the only technology that I know that's very well suited to carry out that kind of activity. 
right? You can help build those foundational processes for cross-department collaboration, information sharing, you know, making sure that actions are logically linked, validated, fed back into a feedback loop. And like besides just providing that collaborative, transparent environment to carry out campaigning, you know, a modern synthetic environment of today, they're very flexible, they're modular. You can produce some really stellar insights here. And Jenny touched on a few of these, but you know, we can use this to game out decisions. We can be much more proactive with how we intend to carry out integrated deterrence. We can develop best practices, right? If an adversary does X, what do we do? Uh, we can find patterns in adversary behaviors in response to our actions. And as Jenny also mentioned, there's that cognitive modeling. We can add more fidelity into that feedback loop, right? Does doing X really deter? Does it further aggravate? Does it land with leadership the way we intended? And these are things that we can now measure with a bit more fidelity, right? How do our adversaries perceive our credibility? And that seems like something worth investigating, right? If we want to make sure that the actions we're taking in pursuit of integrated deterrence are actually generating the effects that we want. And for what it's worth, you know, we're talking about the applicability of synthetic environments on other military missions in terms of information operations as well. I also think it has a really potential important role in a joint force development. I think it provides a stage for, you know, to help address the broken joint requirements process by providing opportunities, again, to bring in stakeholders horizontally from the department to help identify gaps and redundancies in the joint force, vice how it's done very stovepipe currently. And you know, of course, technology alone cannot solve these problems. Uh, we need the right leadership and culture and authority. But ultimately, I find it really hard to believe that we would be attempting to achieve these goals, um, integrated deterrence and specifically campaigning, without injecting technology into it and specifically simulation technologies into that equation. Um, from my experience, the department is just starting to understand the utility of simulation technologies, but for much more discrete sort of tactical use cases and not as that sort of holistic platform um, where a lot of the complexity that it's trying to manage could be addressed or gamed out. I, I think that's some crazy good insights, Whitney. And I want to ask you a little bit more of a philosophical question based on what you were talking at the end as well as we're dealing with going not only inter-service but inter-government when you talk about integrated deterrence or you know what I might even consider full scope deterrence um, across kind of what people would call dime or PEMISI spectrum and that means going across not only those military services but different departments across the branches um, lots of stuff involved that was as we saw through again that going back to kind of that cold war fight um, when we look at our adversaries though as you noted um, when we're envisioning what our adversaries are doing um, those authoritarian regimes both of them have more streamlined approaches in the sense that they can be directive um, and there's already standards a lot of times built in. Um, and that's not to say that there's not rivalries and um, infighting and things like that, but do you see that separation where we're trying to overcome maybe by um, you know synthetic environments, as you said, or those constructive environments as well? Um, and, and it's not only technology, but it's policy, it's culture. Um, do you see that as a strength or do you see that as a weakness and, and how do we get across that, that different kind of valley of death? 
Totally. I think that brings up a really good point because when you're saying that, you know, I'm assuming we're talking about Russia and China have more of these streamlined processes. I'm thinking I'll still take our process any day of the week, right? Like where there's a culture where we're allowed to disagree. Um, although I think our culture in that aspect still has a lot of work. I think that's one of our limiting factors when we're talking about, you know, adopting emerging technologies and things like that. Um, I actually think that a collaborative process like a simulation environment can help break down a lot of those stovepipes and equities. If we say, you know, the joint force requirement is happening on this platform and you either participate or you're just going to get what comes to you. I mean, that is a really, <laughs> um, you know, incentivizing for forcing mechanism. Um, and two, you're really incentivizing cross collaboration in a way that wouldn't be organic or easy. You know, when we're talking about using synthetic environments for, you know, information operations training, a lot of these things that we're talking about are extremely time intensive, resource intensive. And so you're also doing it, you know, in a way that is cost effective, especially when folks can join from disparate locations. Um, and so I think to me there's sort of unlimited potential there. Um, I find synthetic environments sort of inevitable in a way that I don't find other technologies. Um, I just think that we're still still looking at synthetic environments as these discrete things like AR, VR. We haven't really understood its capability or its potential as that you know, holistic platform. And I think part of that is we're still unclear about what it means to be a modular, flexible synthetic environment and how that can be leveraged to help with, you know, many different solution sets across the department and other government agencies. No, that's fantastic. Thank you, Whitney. And I want to make a hard turn real quick and a uh, question for Jenny. Um, you know, one of the new technology buzzwords this year, and we're hearing it all over its tech right now, is metaverse. And I think that um, I'm pretty sure my 8 and 11 year old sons are living in some kind of Pokemon metaverse right now. And, um, you know, you've written a lot about, though, the application of metaverse for the DOD um, and, and what that can bring and possibilities and opportunities. So what is, you know, in, in plain speak, what is the metaverse and what kind of applications could we see? Oh, thank you for that question, Luke. So before I answer it, uh, I'd like to pull the audience. Who here is a skeptic? All right, we got some skeptics in the room. Good. That means we get to start with story time. So I love this anecdote from the 90s. Um, so basically, Bill Gates went and sat down with Dave Letterman in the 90s, and they were sitting down to talk about what Letterman called this internet thing. And Letterman asked Gates, so what can you do on this internet thing? And Gates goes, oh, well, you know, you can watch a baseball game. And Letterman looks at him and he's like, well, you know, have you heard of the radio? And Gates was like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, you can listen to a baseball game at the time and place of your choosing. And Letterman goes, well, have you ever heard of a recorder? And, you know, Gates carries on and he tries and he tries to convince Dave Letterman of the utility of the internet. And at the end, Dave Letterman paused and he goes, you know what, it's too bad that there is no money and no real use in the internet. Now obviously, fast forward to today, we're all sitting here with our mobile phones, we're glued to them, we cannot operate or function as a society with the internet. So I wanna start with that story because I'm gonna ask you all to suspend your disbelief. Um, hopefully I can convince you that in some way, shape, or form, the metaverse is probably coming. It just is probably not coming the way I'm going to describe it or how anyone else on the show floor at ISTIC is going to describe it. So the way people tend to talk about a metaverse 
is it is a series of interconnected virtual worlds that afford their users a sense of agency and presence. Now, to be honest, that's really not a very sexy thing when you're talking to an audience like ours, because quite frankly, we've been using interconnected virtual worlds within the military since the 90s with SimNet, which is shorthand for simulator networking. So as I'm sure many of you know, you know, Sim SimNet was the first distributed kind of force-on-force -force training simulator for the Army. And we have been using distributed, uh, distributed simulations or distributed virtual worlds for training since the 90s through standards like HLA, high-level architecture, or DIST, distributed interactive simulation. So then the question is, well, all right, what's new? What is new about the metaverse or a metaverse? Well, I would argue what's new is that the commercial world is finally paying attention and that there's actually commercial applications for this. So in the next 10 years, it is estimated that a metaverse or the metaverse is going to be worth 2.8% of global GDP or slightly over $3 trillion. That is a lot of money and that kind of money on the commercial side is going to fuel innovation across the entire technical stack that will undergird these future metaverses. And that has interesting implications for defense. So what I want to do is try to break down that technical stack for you and talk a little bit about why this might matter in a defense context. So the first one is the user interface. We obviously use user interfaces to take advantage of virtual worlds for training or decision support right now. There's some really interesting things already happening on the commercial world, particularly when it comes to things like haptics. So there's this thing called micromechanical systems where they literally create this force field around you where you can, through the nerve endings in your fingertips, feel things like a teddy bear or it's like you're holding, holding a bowling ball. And you could see how these types of haptic systems could have really interesting applications in defense, say for medical simulations, or like what if we want to simulate for special forces operators or for ground forces what it's like to operate in environmentally hostile conditions like the Arctic. You could see how these types of things could be brought into training. You know, another kind of layer in the future metaverse tech stack, people talk about the cyber-physical interface. Um, this oftentimes ties back to concepts like digital twins. Um, we, also, we talk about digital twins a lot within a military context when it comes to things like acquisitions. Um, you know, as the commercial space becomes more adept at creating digital twins of socio-technical systems, there's a lot of interest in creating digital twins of urban environments. Um, this might allow the military to grapple with what we were talking about earlier, some of those woolier aspects of warfare, like human sentiment, cognition, decision. There's also, you know, that content ecosystem. So we're obviously used to this within a, um, a military simulation context. Um, a content ecosystem are the models, the terrain, the AI that make up a simulated world. Um, what I find really interesting when you look at what the commercial sector is doing this in the space is how they're democratizing content creation. So you've seen a lot of metaverse companies springing up like Roblox where essentially people that are using these tools can create their own content. They are no code tools for content creation. So where would that be interesting in a military context? So um, in my mind, when we think about things like wargaming, a lot of our wargaming SMEs, they're used to doing tabletop exercises. They are not um, programmers. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of the programmers don't have um, subject matter expertise in wargaming. Can you imagine if we were able to create no code tools where wargamers could 
easily create their own digital games or think about training simulations. Oftentimes you have to go back to a contractor if you need a new model integrated into that training simulation. What if a training provider could do that themselves to make that process far more agile so that you can augment training on the fly? Um, there's the runtime infrastructure, so the middleware that allows a simulation to run that also governs interoperability within a federation. Um, so obviously, like the modeling and simu simulation community, you know, the metaverse community is going to have to figure out a figure out a way to get various um, metaverses to work together. What's even more interesting when it comes to you know, conversations around the metaverse and the commercial space is they want data and content, so avatars, clothing, um, personal information to be able to move from one world, virtual world, to the next, but they also want that data or content to be able to be modified, sold, or exchanged, which really is going to push the limits when it comes to things like interoperability. So as the, as the commercial world starts to coalesce around you know, new standards to facilitate that interoperability, that might open up avenues for the defense world to move beyond kind of legacy standards like HLA or DIS. On the networking side, you know, as networking infrastructures improved, this is going to have immense benefits for us when it comes to things like distributed training. Um, we have so many latency issues when it comes to implementing things like JLVC. Um, so you, can, you could definitely start to understand that as that physical infrastructure improves, we should be able to reap the benefits of that. And then we can talk, to th talk about things like compute or hosting. Um, so obviously the commercial world is looking at hacking things like persistence, real-time rendering, or you know, high concurrent user count. So all of those things could theoretically, training or analytic end goal dependent, be incredibly valuable. So for instance, on the commercial side, we have figured out ways to host thousands of individual users within one simulated environment. This is very different from what's happened in the past. So typically you can host like 60 to 100 people within a simulated environment and then you have to shard it multiple times to give that kind of feeling that thousands of people are there. The commercial community is cracking that. Think about what that would mean if you brought that into defense, what that could mean for simulating amphibious operations, urban operations, um, swarm attacks. So there's just a lot of opportunities there. It's just figuring out like where is that application and how can you exploit elements of the tech stack to solve specific um, you know, challenges within a military context. Yeah, Jenny, I think that's a great answer. And, and I think the point about um, the no-code option I think is huge And speaking on for myself and not the department of defense or any subcomponent of that, um, I think that's probably a game changer because while we'll need everyone to conceptually understand what's happening, I think it's unreasonable to expect every soldier and civilian to be a coder at, at that level. Um, Paul, I want to I stay with the metaverse real quick um, and go back to what you were talking about with the cognitive warfare piece. So do you think that the, the cognitive warfare concept, do you think in the metaverse that's going to amplify trends like misinformation and disinformation? And what do you think we should be doing and other states should be doing to combat that? Thanks for that <coughs> question, Matt. Um, yeah, I definitely um, quite concerned actually on how the metaverse will, will impact the, the influence game, if you will. Uh, so while most people working on the metaverse have, are looking logically at the, at the many benefits that are, that are there, uh, my main focus has been looking at the, the threat potential. And, and honestly, you know, picking up uh, what I was talking about earlier, uh, 
on the the physiological data i think the uh, how that will be uh, the in the increase of uh, collection of that kind of data f through metaverse uh, hardware like you know headsets and haptic equipment and so on will uh, dramatically increase in in my opinion and of course you know there's legitimate reasons for that to increase user experiences and so on because you'll you'll want to track eye movement you will want to track uh, heart rate and and all of that stuff to to increase the user experience but but we all know historically that 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 kind of data will be used for uh, commercial purposes and it will be uh, exploited and weaponized as well and to me that that is certainly a, a concern something we need to be aware of particularly if if the platforms build in the ability to dynamically uh, react in real time to physical or physiological uh, responses that that's uh, that's a, a great concern uh, with a with a massive imp potential impact on uh, malign influence. Another aspect of the metaverse that I find, or potential that, that I find concerning, is that as we see now, the the algorithms of social media platforms provides sort of a personalized feed. Right. If if we draw draw the parallel to the metaverse, you were likely to see personalized. Uh, virtual experiences, right? So that you know, it's it's all data generated. So so, what's preventing the platforms of presenting a slightly different version of the virtual ver world or uh, virtual reality to every single individual based on their personal profile? And I'm just thinking that uh, you know, the more immersive experience the more influence potential there is. And I think that going from a 2D social media platform with all the adverse effects we've seen over the last decade, I think the potential for really disruptive uh, influence operations through a future metaverse is, is quite a um, scary um, future to think of. Again, um, adding the existing technologies to these new uh, platforms. If you include the deep fakes or synthetic media to um, to uh, the metaverse and combine it with these uh, other potential uh, sort of influence tools, you could see that uh, you know you will be approached by someone uh, in the metaverse that perfectly fits your Tinder preferences, right? And then they will dynamically change their behavior, their body language, their intonation, their uh, all aspects of their their appearance and and their approach to you, based in real time on the physiological responses that are recorded by your VR headset or your haptic gloves or whatever it is. And I think if if you allow yourself to think about the metaverse in that way, it is potentially quite a scary, uh, scary thing. I just want to quickly jump in and say that I do think industry has a really important role to play here. Um, industry has seen the failures from the web 
2.0 kind of social media platform model. We have seen what has happened when um, companies have not proactively addressed misinformation and disinformation. Uh, I think everyone has seen Mark Zuckerberg be pulled before Congress. I can assure you that no company wants to experience that pain. So I think it's really important for companies that are involved in the design and development of these future metaverses to be thinking about this in a very proactive way. So how do you build content moderation, um, various means to mitigate and prevent disinformation and misinformation from the start? So from like early stage like prototypes all throughout the development life cycle from an in, in a really iterative kind of way. Um, so I, I do hope that you know companies have learned from that and they're starting to think about this m much more proactively. I don't think that's going to mitigate against all of the problems that Paul has mentioned, but I do think you know um, it is something front and center of people's minds. No, I think it's a great point, Jenny, because. Uh, when we look at it, especially as there's increased use of AI machine learning uh, for operations, moderation in these things, you can't uh, necessarily put the toothpaste back in the tube um, and you have to think about the ethics, morality, um, and regulatory side of that at the beginning uh, as you build that. It doesn't mean you can't, uh, so to speak, tinker um, with the algorithm and the output and the black box, but uh, you have to begin, again, with the end in mind for those. Um, so we could listen to these three experts talk for hours if you didn't have to listen to Matt and I. Um, but uh, in order to wrap things up, we really want to hear from the audience. Um, so uh, at this time, if we could, uh, if anybody has any questions, uh, if you'd like to come down on this side uh, to Matt's uh, side over here, I uh, would like to take any questions from the audience now. Hi, uh, my name is Keith Holton. I think this question is for Jennifer or Jenny. Um, uh, what do you see the role is of the JSC in the coming synthetic environment world? First of all, I think the JSC is is getting things right from the start. I love the fact that it is a collaboration between the Air Force and the Navy and that we're starting to think about how we can work um, at an inner service level when it comes to the development of these common synthetic environments. Um, I'm glad that there's conversations going on with the Army about how we can create this environment together. Um, something that has always concerned me, particularly when we think about you know, our future multi-domain force, is that we are developing these synthetic environments somewhat in silos. Um, you know, you have, your, you have the synthetic training environment for the Army. There was going to be CSTE for the Air Force, so I'm glad that it's now going to be JSC, Air Force, Navy. But at the end of the day, we need our warfighters to be able to train together. And oftentimes, although I know this is, we are trying to ensure that this does not happen, oftentimes these environments are built in a way where it's very complex, very time-consuming, and very challenging to start to bring these environments together. They are these monolithic, beasts. We ask that they are they um, embrace a modular open systems approach. They do not always do that, and a lot of models are not developed in a way um, that are embracing MOSA principles or are developed like microservices. So I think the fact that we are starting with the idea that it, it will be a joint synthetic environment is the right one. Um, it gives me a lot of confidence. I do hope that the conversations with the Army moves forward and we figure out ways to kind of build in that interoperability from the start and ensure that we are not constantly reinventing the wagon. Um, so that we can, you know, save taxpayer dollars and that, you know, this environment is truly a joint training environment. 
Hi, Nathan Cohen from Old Dominion University. Uh, Paul mentioned a lot of the risks that were involved uh, more on an individual scale with uh, in the cognitive domain with the metaverse. I just wonder on an aggregate scale, uh, what are some of the sociological, societal issues that may emerge from uh, personalization type uh, metaverse? Thanks for that question, Nathan. Um, I think while we don't really know the answer, I suppose, uh, I think, or my concern is that we'll see uh, the trend that we have seen over the last 10 years, but exponentially uh, increasing uh, adverse effects like uh, lack of lack of trust uh, and increased uh, polarization of societies. Um, that is uh, th that's certainly the the hypothesis, and then. Uh, we are, we are not at the stage yet in our work on the cognitive warfare concept that we have been able to to validate that hypothesis, or, uh, but that is the aim for, for next year. So um, that's our concern. That, uh, that, is, that is what my, my command has uh, sort of uh, uh, taken as the, the, the position that uh, the, these new technologies will will uh, exacerbate the, the trends that we're, we're already seeing. Great question, of course, from a Old Dominion University, uh, my, my alma mater, go Monarchs. Um, so since I didn't see anybody else jumping up for questions, I am gonna ask one that we typically ask on the podcast, often considered our hardest question, uh, and I'll start with Whitney and go down the line, uh, but this tells us a lot about our guests. What is your favorite movie? So much pressure. Um, my top of mind is Gladiator. When I was, well, we I was a had, very Jen, normal kid Jenny that had a blog at 11, and I would type out all my favorite quotes from Gladiator on it. It's very cool stuff for me to do. Can we get the URL on that blog? <laughs> I hope it's dead somewhere. Um, but yes, that was my favorite movie growing up. I could quote it line by line, honestly, at some point. So that's a still standout for me. Well, I think for me, it's got to be Blade Runner and uh, the original Blade Runner, not the, not the new one, of course. Uh, I think it probably sits well with at least parts of this audience. And no, it's just an amazing, dark, gritty movie about, you know, um, futures that we probably don't want to end up in. So, yeah. so Jenny, what's your third favorite movie then? Yeah, my gosh, everyone's killing me. I have been on the Army Mad Scientist podcast before, and I did get to say Gladiator on that one, so I can say I preempted Whitney. Um, I'm going to go with Black Hawk Down, unbelievable uh, military like war film. Um, it kills me every time. I just think it's beautifully filmed. It's raw. I cry. I just like films like that. I, I assumed it would be Forrest Gump, Gen A. I do like that film, too. I do like that film, too. He's been waiting to use that all day. I'm surprised by the, uh, this audience, though. You all don't want to be on the podcast? This is a great way to get on the podcast. By, Ask by a the question. Way, I knew that's what you were doing. Are all three of those Ridley Scott films? Did we just do a trifecta of Ridley Scott films? We don't have time to go into this right now. We'll have to just say that. We'll, we'll talk offline about that and what that means. We do have a question in the back. Okay, let's come back to this. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Misty Blowers. I work for a company called Dialytica. I was just wondering, is there any thought to um, 
creating a metaverse for deployed families um, so that they can connect with their loved ones while they're in remote areas or locations? Thank you. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So one of the big ideas behind a metaverse on the commercial side is actually the socio uh, social elements of it. Um, so I think it's something that we don't really think about in defense because we're constantly thinking about you know training, um, recruitment, experimentation, uh, various things like that. But if you could create, and I think this would be a big jump, and it would be a big jump in the way we also do procurement and stuff, but you could theoretically think about creating these a metaverse to kind of get at a lot of the social elements of our military, uh, for our military force. I mean, at the end of the day, we all know that joining the military, it's not just a vocation. There's a big social and kind of family um, element to it very much becomes your life. Um, so just like how on base, you know, people provide, like we provide bowling alleys to our service members or we provide various social services. You could see how these virtual worlds could step in and provide support um, to service members and to their families. Um, it could be a way to keep people connected when they're from afar. Obviously, we move our service members around a lot that can disrupt families, particularly kids that are in school. You could see how you could start to provide education where people can be linked in with their you know previous kind of duty station um, I do think this is like that's like pushing the limits it's not the kind of ways that we think traditionally in defense but since the classic idea behind a metaverse on the commercial side is the social side I think there are ways to start to think about well you know are there threads that we could be pulling on the defense side to really play into things like morale which as we all know is a critically important when we're thinking about our future force Fantastic answer, Jenny. And uh, I say this in the most positive way possible, but the three of you make me feel stupider than I felt this morning uh, because you were, you were just brilliant, and I can't thank the three of you enough. Um, for, for giving us all your insights and brilliance. Um, and I think we all here share that passion uh, for what we want to do. I cannot thank the audience enough for being here and being so engaged. Um, in Mad Scientist, we always say we're not a community of interest. We're not a community of practice. We're a community of action. So it doesn't end here. Um, please engage with our, our panelists. Uh, and you can engage with Matt and myself as well uh, because we want to hear your ideas and we want to take them uh, to a place that we can actually make something happen. So again, thank you all so much. I'll leave you with uh, three things that I always try to leave at the end of all of these, which is uh, in the future, be bold, be disruptive, and be relentless. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests for talking with us during IETSEC as part of the Next Big Thing series of talks. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and helps us reach a bigger and broader audience. 